0: The planet's pop and masters almost surely have a plan. There's clearly
1: maybe something near beyond the realm of man. And until you've thoroughly tested every last close just in view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. That's true, Doctor says. Well. Where
0: would we be without you?
1: All right, Higher Side cheddar's. if you dare to look between the seams of cubicle life and constant screens, you will find a Pandora's box of strange and paranormal stories that suggest a world full of weirdness far more interesting than what you see in the sideshow circus of tabloid news and political infighting. A world the shadowy puppet masters would rather you just not know about, a fact made obvious by even the most simple of understandings of the societal latticework on which we're shaped and grown. The making illegal of any door-opening compounds, the complete lack of education or cultivation of natural journeying and meditation techniques, engineering a culture of ridicule and doubt in which people are discouraged from even sharing their own experiences, and a secretive and compartmentalized government that stonewalls any inquiry into such silliness as alien races, underground worlds, or multidimensional entities. Well, lucky for us, today's guest is not bound by the powers that be or disillusioned by the smoke and mirrors or shiny distractions meant to steer us away from such areas. He is the legendary Brad Steiger, author or co-author of over 170 books and writer of over 2,000 articles on The Unexplained since 1956. His newspaper column, The Strange World of Brad Steiger, could be found in over 80 newspapers in the 70s and he's been talking on the airwaves about such weirdness longer than I've been alive. Hot off the heels of four new ebooks in his Real nightmare series, The Papa Bear of Paranormal, Bradma Man, welcome to the higher side.
2: Thanks, Greg. Delighted to be here.
1: Yeah, it is a real honor for me. I've definitely been reading your work and hearing you on shows like Coast to Coast, going back probably to high school, about half my life. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, to have you here on my own show, it's a bit surreal. It's very cool. And you've had this great career writing about weird stuff. But like a lot of people in this field, that trajectory, it really comes from a few unexplained experiences in your youth, correct?
2: Yes, yes, that's correct. I really had no choice growing up in a haunted house the way I did. It had been the old stagecoach stop. And that kind of speaks right there, you know, that something might be hanging on. And the old-timers in the area would tell me how the the James boys stayed overnight there before they went up to Northfield, Minnesota, for the big Northfield raid <laughs> and all kinds of stories that went on. And um, the night visitors that we had, uh my sister and I became insomniacs because of being awakened so many times. And we joked that there must have been a lot of passengers that missed the stage because they're still walking around in our house.
1: <laughs> yeah. It is so interesting that you note that your farmhouse was built on the site of that old stagecoach stop because, you know, in magical practice, when you want to find spirits, it's common to go to a crossroads. And it seems like you kind of grew up on one.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. When I was just a wee lad, of course, there was a nice stream running by where the horses could water and so forth and and places where they could feed. And before we tiled all that, and then we had the phenomena, of course, when we tiled the creek of having fish come up in the cornfield, which was always in the heavy rain, I'm talking about. Huh. So it was a, a place that, um, and, and interestingly, because people, alas, What happened? What would happen today? Is it still that way? Well, interestingly, we tore the house down when I was a senior in high school, way back in 1953. And it didn't matter because being frugal Scandinavian Americans, we used a lot of the same (laughs) lumber,
0: Hmm. and
2: that seemed to have brought the entities there. So we still had. Not so much the traffic where they're going through at night, but the thumping and the bumping, and what we kind of call shadow people now. But but it's interesting to note that somehow, if an area is haunted, it stays that way. Mm -hmm. And you can talk about you know, as they do on some of the television shows, you know, doing exorcism or having electronic devices, but really the only instrument that measures and takes notice is the human brain, the human us. Us, we're we're the best ghost detectors. And in terms of my life then, it seemed natural for me to begin to write about this subject and study this subject and go deeper and deeper until pretty soon people were calling me and my crew to investigate haunted houses,
0: mm.
2: and that's where we encountered, you know, a wide range of phenomena. And not all ghosts are the same. And you know, let's let's be honest, Greg. None of us can truly define what a ghost is. Now, it it seems likely that it has something to do with the survival question, survival after death. Mm-hmm. But is it really our parents? Is it really grandpa? Is it really a friend appearing? Or is this a, a multi dimensional entity that assumes that form in that guise so that we will feel comfortable, maybe not as frightened? And there's kind of a, a messaging that goes on that we not, might not be aware of at the time. So it's just one mystery after another, which is why the The new book, which we'll probably be talking about next Halloween, is a a book on ghosts to follow up with my, you know, the couple of ghost books that I've done that have been Mm -hmm. big, fat books and very successful. (laughs) This will be more introspective and ask the question, not only myself, but of probably every psychic investigator of which you're aware. There, I've also asked them to make a contribution and try to answer the question of what is a ghost really? What are they really? Why are they, why do we see them? And we have been seeing them for 50,000 years because we have the cave paintings of that indicates that at that phase of our development. And even Neanderthal, Neanderthal, and it's just homo sapiens, is doing the paintings that clearly indicate that there is a spirit self or a ghost self in addition to the individual who's doing the painting. So we've been seeing ghosts for at least 50,000 years.
1: Right, and I do love those cave paintings. They are so amazing. And you're right. These intelligences are really hard to get a handle on. Are they lost dead humans? Are they something else? It really is tough to know. But one of the phrases that I've heard you say before that I like so much is there's no dogma in the paranormal. And that kind of speaks to exactly what we're talking about. It really is hard to kind of come up with one answer.
2: Yes. And Sherry and I coined that. and We say it often. Because... In the day when we would go out and do seminars practically every weekend and be gone weeks at a time, uh, we met many people who they wouldn't call it dogma. Of course, they would call it true belief.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And we that began to rankle us a bit. And we're not the argumentative types. But we then began saying, well, there really can be no dogma in the paranormal. And I really appreciate <laughs> that you heard that and you remembered that.
1: Yeah, it is a great line. And, you know, one of your new ebooks we decided to focus this on is Alien, Strangers, and Foreign Worlds. And I'm curious, because a lot of researchers do blend the worlds of ghosts and aliens or consider that they might have more overlap than we used to think. Where do you come down on that idea?
2: Oh, yes, yes, yes. I... Uh, Well, we'll go back at the beginning, since I know we have uh, plenty of time to talk tonight. <laughs> it's not one of those where we rush and have to do so many before the commercial comes and so forth. On your program, I get the sense we can just talk, right? Absolutely. So I was writing the biography of Rudolf Valentino. Mm. And I had made the acquaintance of a gentleman who had directed his fan clubs when he was a young boy. He was a man of some years now. And I had my aunt, who had been in show business on Broadway, who knew Rudy, and and I became fascinated by this particular figure. And the book really caught on, and a major publisher had me come out and finish it, and, and stay in an apartment while I finished writing it. In that time, then, I met a number of editors from various publishing houses, and I really hit it off with one fellow from award books who said, have you ever written anything about UFOs? And I said, well, not really. I have an extensive file on UFOs, and I was 11 when the 1947 sightings occur. And as an 11 year old boy, I said, Hey, wonderful. They're here. <laughs> but it turned out, man, it's a little more complicated than that. And we can get into that. But at that time then he said, well, how about doing a book on UFOs? So I had just committed Ivan Keene Sanderson. If you um, if you ran across that name, uh, he was a world famous naturalist and writer. And he had begged me, he was editor of a house, he would begged me to do a book on poltergeist. So I had already signed that contract with another house, but I met with this fellow, and I thought, well, why not UFOs? So I wrote the book on UFOs, and then, of course, well, I shouldn't say of course. I was jumping ahead of myself. I was going to say, of course, then I went on tour. But the book had what a movie has to have to be successful, what a book has to have to be successful. It came out just at the precise time that J. Allen Hynek, if you remember, in Michigan said that UFOs were swamp gas. Well, he didn't really say that, and he didn't mean anything like it, but it was picked up by the press. and. That was making all the headlines when my book came out and it became, you know, a a paperback bestseller in two weeks, which big deal, you know, it's 25 cents a book. But at any rate, that put me on the scene of a writer of quote unquote note, at least in the uh, UFO field. So suddenly... And I've never called myself a ufologist, but suddenly I was noted as a UFO expert and traveling from city to city then and talking to contactees who had their experiences. And it wasn't long after that that John Keel, if you're familiar with that name, and I were talking and I said, you know, I feel like I'm back in the spiritual camps. I feel like I'm back, you know, with the mediums because these people are talking about meeting aliens from outer space, from another planet. But what they're talking about and the messages they're giving is what you would hear in a spiritualist camp, Yeah. which I had attended many, you know, as part of research. And so I began way back then in the 60s to say, You know, do we really have entities from outer space or do we have the same old entities maybe feeling a little jealous of our interest in science saying, hey, we can dress up in space suits. (laughs) We can say we're from outer space. We can keep interacting with you. Maybe, you know, we're smart enough to accept the evolution of types of archetypes and now of course we have ancient astronauts we have all of these beliefs saying that the interaction took place well here again there is no dogma right mm-hmm. so but i began to suspect then and because of personal experiences i had this is one of the most astonishing of my life and i i can't remember i ever told it on the air before, Hmm. but after the book came out, I was with, I had taught high school in Clinton, Iowa, right, on the Mississippi, and friends of mine uh, were still there, a writer friend. So the family went down, and we were visiting and so forth, and my friend was saying congratulations on this book on UFOs, and the kids were saying, oh, UFOs. And then we saw, honest to God, UFOs swooping through the sky, and they appeared to be going out toward the Mississippi. Now, when I lived there as a teacher, I had this one particular place that I would like to go uh, I don't hunt, but I do enjoy target shooting. And it would be down by the river. No one was there. And I could put up cans and shoot. So I said, they appear to be going toward the river. Let's follow. So we went down, parked in this place I was familiar with, and we saw UFOs descending to the ground and then UFOs taking off again. We saw them soaring to the sky. They would face each other and shoot little jabby it looks like, electricity or lightning bolts at each other. Now, they didn't seem to be hurting each other. Maybe they were energizing each other. So I saw this complete show that made anything that would come on Star Wars. I mean, this was Star Wars 40 years ahead of time. (laughs) And... The whole display, and my friend and I were just goggle-eyed. And I thought, you know, everything I wrote about the book is true. They're here, and we're witnessing. This has got to be in the papers. It's got to be every paper. It's the whole town, the whole Mississippi Valley down there, Clinton and Davenport, Rock Island. They all have to have witnesses because this is an incredible panorama in the sky. Not a word. Not Mm. a word. And we kind of hinted at a few people. We were the only ones who saw that. And it was so profound, I have never forgotten it. I can see it in detail as it appeared. I can see the maneuvers they did. Mm. Now, it took me many years. In fact, it took until Sherry and I were in Peru and a, a native um guide said i will take you to a place high in the mountains where the ufos dive in to the lake every night but we had to vow we would not say and sharing the background just reminded me for part of the journey we had to be blindfolded Hmm. we came to this lake and honest to goodness There were UFOs leaving the lake, going to maneuvers, and we watched in awe. And then Sherry decided to try something. She mentally asked them, go to the left, go to the right, and they followed her suggestions or commands. Hmm. That's when I realized, and don't take this (laughs) improperly or incorrectly, please, Greg. But that some of this, whatever we want to call it, manifestation, can be for individuals. Mm -hmm. In other words, the show in on the Mississippi,
0: the display
2: in Peru wasn't just for us, because surrounding us were uh, Aboriginal people, barefooted. It was too cold for us to be barefooted, but they were carrying their supplies or perhaps things are going to take to the market the next day they would stop and look but they were familiar with seeing the UFOs go in and out every night so it was no big deal to them but it was a big deal to us and pro- provided us with another link to what may be going on
1: mm-hmm. wow yeah that is a great story and I definitely agree with you there's a psychological component to these things for sure And another fascinating thing that people should probably know is that your wife, Sherry, also an author, she worked closely with Dr. J. Allen Hynek, one of the people who, of course, was an official scientific advisor for the U.S. Air Force's study into UFOs. Yes. I guess she also served as his publicist for his nonprofit UFO research organization in Phoenix up until the point that he died. And that's pretty amazing. That puts her pretty close to the inner circle i'm sure she's gotten a lot of insight from that proximity wouldn't you say
2: well yes indeed and she, she was the one that uh made it happen that uh Heineck had that little cameo in in close encounters of the third kind wow as a publicist as a publicist
1: sure huh very cool and You being 11 years old during Roswell and all of the weirdness of 1947, that's just so crazy to me. You had to think that maybe our understanding or public acceptance would be somewhere different than it is right now. I mean, how has that trajectory evolved to you? Is it what you might have expected? Did you think we'd hit disclosure by this point in your life?
2: Well, yes, I did. I, Like I said, when I'm 11 years old and... uh, People are making these reports and my reaction was, yay, they're here, they're here, they're landing, we're going to make contact. Yeah. But I have to add something because just within a few weeks of that, I suffered a terrible farm accident in which I died. Hmm. And The town doctor, the village doctor, my uncle and my father decided to make a run to a surgeon in Des Moines. There were no superhighways then, but they thought he might be able to. I should say I was dying. I wasn't dead then. (laughs) But the word was, of course, that I was on the way. Well. I had a near-death experience then just weeks after the big UFO sighting of which I was so exciting, (laughs) excited. So I think pieces came together while I was out of the body. Now interestingly, and again sharing this with you, I didn't see the classic tunnel. I didn't See the, the classic angels, what I saw was geometric designs that somehow spoke to me. Mm. I would say, you know first i don't want I don't want to die, and then these designs appeared, which I understood. you know, don't worry if you do, the world will go on so i didn't i realized then i was not integral to the earth's survival but then i would ask questions that were the meaning of life and is there a purpose to life is there a plan to life is there a course and every one these designs would shift and shape i can see them today as i'm talking to you And somehow they spoke so I could understand. I had never seen anything like it until Sherry was doing a seminar on healing and she had chosen to use various geometric designs. She had been guided to use these particular geometric designs. And that's when I saw the designs, many of them that I saw during my near death experience. And people claim during their healing session to be able to hear again. Some claim to have been cured. So, whatever this intelligence is that communicates with geometric symbols and designs is incredibly powerful and maybe what guides the entire universe.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I am right there with you with the geometric shapes thing. And can you give us any more detail about the meaning of life according to these shapes?
2: You know, the, the strange thing is I came back with what I knew was the complete program for the continued existence of earth but I can't articulate them. Mm. It was like I knew I know when I came back at eleven and and it was a Roman Catholic hospital and the nuns were around my bed and they said they said, You have been someplace. Tell us, tell us. And I tried to tell the nuns.
0: In my room, there was
2: a little girl who was dying. Her parents were, of course, sorrowing, grieving. And the nuns said, ask him, because he was there. He saw, he saw the other side. And I was just led, and I don't remember now, but I spoke to this couple, this grieving couple, telling them where their daughter would be going and what would be taking place, and It was a sad grieving situation now, but it was a moment of happiness for their daughter because she was born with a with a situation that would have uh, tormented her all of her life. It would have been a lifetime of, of pain and suffering for her.
0: Hmm. So
2: I, you know, it was strange because I'm 11 years old and here I am like a prophet <laughs> speaking to this grieving couple. Now, as far as the meaning of life, I think we all know and we can all have these moments. I I would not presume, Greg, to lecture someone on what's going to happen and so forth. Uh, I tried to do that. In my books, Sherry and I tried to do it in our books to give indication. And we're having, you know, we're having now in in the, like our most recent book, we're having top scientists. I mean, scientists who had been with the Pentagon and now retired, mm-hmm. and they're sharing with us and they're sharing their concepts because they have read either one of my books or one of our books and they recognize the truth of what we're saying. And, and we're getting some just. Wonderful, wonderful scientific minds to recognize the truth of other worlds, other consciousness, other realities, and other beings, intelligent beings. It's becoming more exciting every day. And now that I'll be 82 in just a couple of months, you know, mm. I look upon all these things as it, it was so fast. You know, <laughs> it seems like I was eleven only yesterday, and now that many decades, and that many books, and that many lectures, and that many sharings, and I recognize again the the circle of life that we are all walking, that we are all striding, and the gifts that we are given. Whether we recognize them at the time as yes. I mean, my father picked up this battered, shattered boy in a field. My sister is going hysteric because she she was driving the tractor and she was I, I my fault. I she was only seven years old, but I said, sis, you can drive the tractor and I'll do this, well. I fell and was run over by horrible machinery that just really cut me to pieces.
0: Hmm.
2: But uh, I survived that, and I realized then certainly I had a purpose, and with the near-death experience that was underlined for me, what I I see now in some of my biographies that it says, I had been a Lutheran until that time, but after my dear death experience, I left the Lutheran church. Well, come on. I was 11 (laughs) years old. I didn't have any idea. In fact, I had been groomed. Everyone in the little village thought I was going to be a minister from the time I was about eight years old. So I was even more Resolute that I would become a minister, because I could tell my congregation there really is life after death, hmm. there really is something beyond this veil of tears which we presently inhabit. But it was when then I began to progress and begin to get research uh, sherry is was on the staff of the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Uh, we certainly have our spiritual faith is stronger than ever. And we recognize that the teachings of all of our avatars have value. Mm. And we, as I said, kind of along with the rest of America, and I say this not with any judgment, just as a matter of fact, that church attendance is dropping in, in all the various uh, uh, shadings of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But spirituality or the belief in spirit and, and spiritual strength is growing stronger and stronger with every generation. Right. And I think soon we will reach that point where we recognize that we can communicate directly with the benevolent entities that are concerned about us and protective of us.
1: Absolutely. I think you're spot on there because people I just think have been disillusioned by the religious authorities, but yet instead of rejecting everything, they have these personal experiences like you've had. And you just realize, well, I can't throw everything out. You know, maybe I don't want to listen to these guys at the top of the pyramid asking for money. But that doesn't mean there's nothing going on after I die. And, man, I'm sure being run over by a tractor is not fun, but it's hard to put a price on a peak behind the curtain, especially in that (laughs) crazy year of 1947.
2: (laughs) Yes, that was a very fateful year for me.
1: Looking back at it, it just seems like one of the craziest years ever. You got Admiral Byrd, you got Roswell, you got this personal thing for yourself. It's a a real paranormal and strange stuff cornucopia that year.
2: Cornucopia fits it very well.
1: (laughs) And another great example of just how long you've been in the game is the Shaver mystery. One of my favorite stories, but Richard Shaver, of course, is the guy who claimed to discover these subterranean human-like creatures called the Dero. They claim to be a slave race that now inhabits the underground cities of their ancient Lumerian overlords. It is just great stuff. But the story comes from Richard Shaver sending his story to Ray Palmer, who is the editor of Amazing Tales. And you've actually sat down with Ray Palmer in person before he died in the 70s and talked to him at great length about the Shaver saga, it seems, right?
2: Yeah, what a great guy Ray was. I mean, what a great guy. And, you know, the first thing, I I don't know if you would know this, but he was a little person. Hmm. I mean, he couldn't have been uh, five feet tall. And so, of course, he originated Fate magazine before Curt and Mary Fuller took over, and he was writing the Ziff Davis science fiction magazines. So in, he was Mr. Amazing Stories, but he was also Mr. UFO at that time. And when I came, you know, again, I couldn't help. I didn't say anything, but I just kind of my eyes widened and he laughed and said, Go ahead and say it. (laughs) I said, No, I know you've heard it enough. He says, Yes. People say, Well, you came in a flying saucer yourself. (laughs) But of course, he had spent his entire life working with the mysteries that so many of us have perpetuated. He really was. He was a little person. He was a giant. He was really a giant,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and such a, a warm and and a gentle man and loving man. At any rate, I had actually gone over to visit him because of the you mentioned it before. You know the the hollow earth with the Antarctica connection. Mm-hmm. That we had this great explorer who had all the legitimacy of his research going over Antarctica and seeing this opening. So I wanted to find more about that particular situation, but what we got into then, of course, was the shaver mystery because I just could not resist talking about it. Now, Ray actually said That he had gone to Shaver's home and one night then he had heard what he was convinced was the voices, the voices coming from the subterranean world that they inhabited. But I think, you know, I can't help applying how this is part of our literature, part of our mythology. The hollow earth, because if we look at the Hindus and we look at the many of the Eastern religions and some of the, uh, we look at the Romans, they did believe in a world in the caves, right? Deep within that were survivors of some Atlantis type disaster. Now, we're not saying It was Atlantis, but it was a world that had been destroyed. And then others, of course, see it as the home of the gods. Now, if uh, I should mention that these four books were put together kind of as a Halloween surprise for me by my publisher and by some of the staff. Awesome. If i had selected the order myself i would have put the chapter of the hollow earth a having haven for ancient beings because i i guess i just like to do things in you know my order of things <laughs> which uh you know we all think is the best one sure but i i think we need to know that this is nothing new for our species to believe that there are gods. Now, in the Hindu Buddhist traditions, we call them the Nagas. And we have the Mahabharata, we have the Ramayana, and all of those works that that talk about these marvelous creatures, uh, both magical and divine, that live there and communicate with us either mentally or from time to time, they walk among us. So Richard Shaver, when he began to claim this particular experience, could have indeed, I'm not saying copied the idea, but certainly he could have been inspired either on one level of consciousness or another by this group knowledge, by this uh, this racial memory that we have. Mm. because even though you might say well I'm not a Hindu and I didn't grow up in India I believe you know that we still we have that interspecies communication whether we're aware of it or not that's why we might go to a movie and sit and watch and it might be about a foreign country and we say this is really familiar to me I feel like I live there well some people say I had a past life there, I'll just bet. Mm -hmm. But then other people will say, well, not a past life, but maybe we really are a group mind. Now, we live by a a pond fed by a creek, and we've got like, uh, you know, a thousand geese out there now (laughs) because they're flying south. And Sherry and I sit there just astonished at seeing the group mind of these various flocks. Mm. It, it's just amazing how they'll be quiet, they'll be not moving, and then all of a sudden, 50 of them might just suddenly take off, just all as one, as one mind, as one bird, as one pair of wings. And we can't really say, because, You know, we have so many of the same genes within us of all the various creatures on this earth, some of them more and some of them less. Right. And we don't know. We can't say. There again, there is no dogma. We can't say how much of this is just group mind. Maybe when we dream at night. I'm sure we've all dreamt of being in a foreign country or speaking a foreign language and some people wake up and, and there's a residue of that. They're still speaking of so a foreign tongue. We probably recognize that in our children when they wake up sometimes and as if they are speaking a, a foreign tongue until they're fully awake. Well, you know, we laugh and just say, well, that was a little babble, but was it really? Or, you know, he could have been reliving. We, no dogma. He could have been reliving a past life mm-hmm. or he could be. Tuning into someone of his own age, his own uh, likes and dislikes, his own passions and and horrors, even when he's five and six years old. And it might be more acute and clear to him then than it will be when he gets older. Maybe it will fade then. Mm-hmm. So again, the group mind with Richard Shaver when he said, I was taken below by these uh, detrimental robots, and and we have the terror and the darrow, and you know there's a connection with Atlantis and the, the wicked darrow who you know are, are doing terrible things to us, and we don't always know it. This could have been just a combination of past life memories, but given a new life through his uh, his our gr- our greatest tool as humans, I know you will agree, Gag, is our imagination. Mm -hmm. And we must learn to control that when we're children, because we can't say when our mother says, why were you late? We can't say, well, an elephant nearly ran over me. No, we can't go that far. Mm. But we do learn that our imagination can be used to create music and art and poetry and and even books about UFOs.
1: Right. I'm with you on so much of this, and I think we really should pay a lot more attention to the clues we get from people at the beginning of their life with some of these kids who have memories of past lives or whatever you want to call them. They have some strange clues to something, and then the people at the end of their life. We also don't spend a whole lot of time talking to them because in some cases people do get insights or some kind of, like, knowledge downloads right in those weeks before they pass where they feel a lot more comfortable with it and there's probably a lot there to get insight from but you know you also you mentioned admiral bird and the antarctica hole that might be there to the inner earth that's another element of your long life i mean with all the technological advancements from the 1940s to 2017 we still don't know a whole lot about that huge landmass. And if we do, it's all under the radar. They don't really talk about us going there, but it's a huge place.
2: I I feel intuitively, Greg, that Antarctica is going to provide a lot of answers to a lot of classic mysteries. Mm. And I read a uh, French novel years and years ago, that dealt with Antarctica as like an Atlantis-type world that then was blighted when the Earth made a sharp move to the left or right the wrong time or whatever, and it was covered with ice during the Ice Age. Could be. So I think that the most recent Ice Age covered up a lot of mysteries That so many of us just intuitively feel will be revealed when we explore and are able to explore Antarctica and some areas of the Arctic. Now with the climate change coming and and the melting of the ice, (laughs) you know, I, I don't want people to be flooded, especially, you know, those people I don't want to learn the lesson that you shouldn't be building, you know, right on the Atlantic coast or the Pacific coast now. So I don't want anyone suffering. I, I truly don't, and I know you don't, and, and who does? Right. But there's part of me that says, you know, come on, ice melt, come on, <laughs> ice melt, because I think we're going to have a revelation there that for many people will be just almost – uh Cataclysmic. I mean, they're just going to be knocked on their heels saying, Oh my God, you know, this is real. This is what it's been all along. This is perhaps my home. This is perhaps where. And, 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 you know, every week it seems, we're coming up with a new tooth that's millions of years old and is definitely, if not Homo sapiens, definitely hominin it's not gorilla it's no animal that we know it is definitely a quote-unquote human tooth we're finding footprints the footprints in greece that were just found a couple of weeks ago that indicates and this will start arguments all over again where did our species move from hominin to Homo sapiens, was it Africa, as we believe now for many years, decades, or is it Eastern Europe? We're finding more and more with the Denisovans, again, that they seem to have been the mystery species that was interbreeding with both Homo sapiens and Neanderthal. Now, years ago, there was a great debate. No, no, no. Neanderthal, Hopo sapiens, they never interacted. I mean, never completely. Because Neanderthal, after all, was nothing more than an ape. Well, we learn now that that isn't true, that they had a religion, that they had beliefs in, a, in a, a, another world, or at least, you know, not another world, but at least a belief in survival of something within them we see by the graves and so forth they didn't just let the body rot they had rituals they had ceremonies so those primitive beings are now we have to recognize them as being truly in the line of homo sapiens and they did interbreed well now the denisovians that we found in siberia it appears that they've been interbreeding with both neanderthal and homo sapiens, and all the other hominins in between. Who knows? Who knows? But this is happening. We cannot say, as they did when I was in college, that man evolved at a certain time, and Neanderthal was... Well, of course, I had... Going to a Christian college, as I did, we were taught in Bible class that even the bodies that had been found or the skeleton that had been found the earth was only of course five 000, six thousand years old mm-hmm. and these were just people who had severe back problems. They were okay. crippled by back problems. Uh. They were not a species. They were not humans. Well now of course that is maybe still cherished and retained by by a portion of our population, but nowhere near the people who are willing to accept that We have been here much longer than we think. And my book, Worlds Before Our Own, uh, which, you know, came out before any of the other books on, on that particular subject, uh, has always been a favorite of mine because again, writing just not wild theories, but just listing the erratics, the objects that have been found where they just don't belong where according to conventional history, conventional archaeology, couldn't have existed at that time. And we're finding more and more bits and pieces of bodies that indicate we've been here a long time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it definitely seems like the past is more like a soup of humanoids, even things as small as pygmies up to giants. It just seems like there's been quite a few life forms, then they seem probably, I would assume, as intelligent as humans, just different. hmm hmm
2: And again, the, the interbreeding, we kind of chuckle, you know, well, I'm a pure blood so-and-so. Uh, th- there's no human walking on this earth who can say he's anything other than human. I mean, the pure blood and so forth. Uh, we see that the eastern invasion, though it wasn't an invasion, but with the Denisovans and other hominins we're discovering, began moving toward Europe, hitting then Scandinavia, and then moving down. So that's when the the interchanging and the interbreeding just was really accelerated. And we're going to find more and more, you know, that... Who are we as a species? Who are we really? That has fascinated me all my life. And again, it is that area of the mind, the body, and our spirit that has obsessed me and Sherry.
0: Hmm.
2: We think, you know, so often that, you know, when it comes to misfits, (laughs) Mm -hmm. we go back to our early childhood and see that we've always believed these things in spite of what everyone else around us might be saying. And you learn, of course, to uh, sometimes keep your mouth closed. But basically you learn, hopefully as writers, you learn methods to put your heretical ideas down on paper in a manner that people can at least read them and
1: consider them.
2: They don't have to accept them, but at least consider them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in terms of interbreeding, one of my favorite comparisons to get into the weird end of the pool is greys and fairies, you know, because a lot of the old stories, <laughs> yeah. they kind of mesh, except for the cultural overlay of sci-fi versus fantasy. Right. They're functionally the same story. They check a lot of the same boxes, and it's just very weird. And the interbreeding angle is interesting because maybe beings used to be very diverse. Hindu and Buddhist traditions talk about the Naga as an ancient semi-divine reptilian race that many elite families over there claim to have in their ancestry. And it's Mm -hmm. not just in the East, of course. The lore of Alexander the Great said he was the product of his mother Olympias mating with a serpent god.
2: That's right.
1: The rumors still swirl about the royal family and reptilian origins, so maybe there is some real story there.
2: Well, there is certainly something there that we should respect at any rate, you know, and we should never, when we hear these things, say, oh, that's just bunk or I I just can't handle that. Take a moment and and you can handle it. If you take a moment to look at things objectively, you can see how you can fit them into your own worldview. Mm -hmm. If you have the courage to recognize that you ain't always right.
1: Amen. And, of course, you being someone who compiles these strange stories and has been getting reports for decades, have you gotten any reports in modern times or heard recent stories that involved openings to the inner earth or beings that live underground?
2: Well, uh, yeah. I've received some very convincing stories. uh, But that's really a tough one, Greg, because I'll get a story from maybe uh, three or four people in a group going through a cave, exploring it. Then they claim to hear weird music and they claim to hear machines. Now, I, I read these stories with great interest. Uh, sometimes uh, I'll even quote them as as a possibility in one of the books which I have done. But again I, I do present it as uh a lot of people make up things for the attention. We we can't deny that. And some of the I just was sent a story you may have seen it too. Some ranchers who are selling their ranch because they claim that aliens are coming and and molesting the wife and beating up the husband and Now, this is where, you know, I, this type of thing, way back in 1966, when I decided to, you know, expand the nuts and bolts, at least in my writing, in my thoughts, to include, you know, that this could be simply, not simply, this could be an extension of the type of, uh, supernatural beings and entities that we believed in for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. But the idea of these individuals actually having a society still maintaining it, as we've just said now, and you brought up the Nagas, this has been for centuries that these entities are there to bring it up to shaver's time where they have machinery that they can uh, eavesdrop on us or they can affect us mentally, they can project these various uh, devices to mess up our lives. That's, again, courting fear. And then the fear aspect has just been too much of this. So, So the couple then who, I mean, I've read their story, they're trying to sell the farm now, or the ranch, uh, if they think this will bring UFO buffs to bid on it, or what? Maybe maybe that's their plan. But their story, I think, is just so wild, and and so and and again, why would we have entities from another world come down and beat up ranchers? <laughs> I mean, they've got to be on the White House lawn. They've got to be making appeal to our our world leaders not beating up on ranchers. So, I mean, this is all these things, you know, fit classic that go back
0: centuries,
2: and you're aware of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there have always been the outliers who feel that they're being attacked, that they have to fear entities that come. And we have vampires, we have werewolves, we have all those creatures at our disposal, and we use them whenever we feel there's no other explanation. It has to be The devil who made us do it.
1: (laughs) Well said. And as we're kind of getting close to the end of the line here, since it is the Halloween season, I wanted to ask you if you could maybe hit us with a story that you find (laughs) most creepy, maybe something that's going to keep people up tonight.
2: Oh, wow. Well, I'll tell a personal story. Sure. Uh, I had... Because, as I said, my haunting experience as a child and as a young person was that they might scare the heck out of your ghosts and but you know they don't really hurt you or they can't really hurt you or they don't I had developed this theory of residual hauntings that somehow hauntings basically were uh, impressed on the atmosphere, you know perhaps some person is dying a, uh, a painful death in, in his bedroom and that bedroom then retains some of those vibrations or retains somehow in the way that film is impressed by radiation, that somehow there's a radiation, a residual radiation. And that had really explained a large number of the hauntings that we investigated as a team. And there's this one home that We were invited to that really had kind of a reputation. Blood would flow from the walls in the basement, and hideous creatures—I don't mean creatures, but human, human Mm -hmm. creatures—were seen. And on this particular instance, I was in the in the uh, closet in the basement where these hideous apparitions would occur, and I was with the uh, wonderfully brilliant psychic uh, irene hughes who you may have heard of she has passed now she's no longer with us but she was picking up impressions and i was there recording them and then my associates my friend who always went with me was the former green berets and i always felt comfortable having him there and he said you know this door keeps trying to close So, well i had to Scrape itself over the rough cement in the basement but it kept trying to close and trying to close on us so when irene finished and had enough impressions she felt from that closet we went upstairs and i said all right the blankety blank thing wants the door locked or closed close the door and lock it which my friend did we went upstairs we hadn't been there long And we heard the door completely smash, just ripped off the hinges. And then we heard like boom, boom, coming up the stairs like King Kong is coming up. And then we were all, all six of us were lifted into the air and then dropped. Now, I realized then you can't make dogma about ghosts either. That. This particular entity had intelligence, could be offended, could be angered, and could seek revenge. So, for those who venture forth on Halloween, and you think you hear a thump or a bump that you haven't heard before, and you're wondering what it may be, it's probably best not to curse it or insult it, but to... Maybe just have an attitude of, of welcome or, okay, you have your world, I have mine, we live in peace.
1: <laughs> Man, yeah, I guess it is a creepy, strange, scary, wonderful, beautiful world out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, well, this has just been so much fun. I love it. Before we go, do remind people about the wide range the wide plethora of stuff you've got out there and where they can go to get it
2: well the best place of course uh, is uh, amazon or barnes and noble or one of our marvelous
0: <laughs>
2: mail order stores which exists now hopefully it's in your local bookstore but if not that's the place to get the books we at present do not have a website because some, Sherry and I like to think that we're loved and universally revered, but someone didn't think so and and, uh, took our website down and uh, somehow managed to destroy it. So she's working on a new one, and that will be up soon. But we have nothing now, regretfully. But you can also contact us. We like to hear from people directly at Brad. And Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y, Steiger, S-T-E-I-G-E-R, at gmail.com. And uh, we wish everyone a very spooky and safe Halloween.
1: Very cool. Well, you are a legend in the field, my man, and I'm so glad we could do this. It's really interesting just to hear your thoughts and reflections on a long career and a deep interest in this weird rabbit hole, and I just loved it. Thanks again, and take care of yourself out there.
2: (laughs) Well, I enjoyed myself. It was a pleasure to be with you, Greg, and take care.
1: Sure thing. Thanks so much. Hocus Pocus and Hallelujah, people. I hope you enjoyed that ride. Like I said, Brad Steiger is just a guy I've been familiar with in this scene for a long, long time, and I do occasionally seek out guests that are sort of fanboy fodder from my youth. Guilty. The problem is that a lot of the time, these older guys are really stuck in their ways with a particular perspective. You see it all the time. And so if I'm going to reminisce and reexamine some of the conspiratorial glory days, Brad is the perfect dude for that, because I love his no-dogma approach. I also think we gloss over the value of a life that's just been around for 80-plus years sometimes. Also, I know that some people probably aren't a fan of the classic landline phone call quality, But for years and years, that's all we had, and today that's what we get. You know, my original plan was just to run through the stories in his collections, but we could really do that with a lot of guests, and not everybody was around in 1947, not everybody sat down with Ray Palmer personally, and not everybody married an assistant of J. Allen Hynek. So I switched gears and really just asked him more biographical, anecdotal questions for the General Conspiratainment Archive. Because to have seen Roswell and the first reality show president, or just fill in the blank with any recent aspect of life, and I just think, man, you nailed it. Get in when the events of 1947 are some of your earliest memories, come of age in the 60s, stick around to see the internet, 9-11, just get a whiff of the collapse, and then get out before everything falls apart. That is how you pick a lifetime, people. I think about that. It's hard to know if I picked it right yet, because, yeah, I... Caused myself just enough personal hell with a decade of grueling retail at paycheck to nerve-wracking paycheck wages. And then found podcasting just as it was really becoming feasible. But we'll have to see how the next few decades unfold. Maybe someone will be interviewing me at 80 because they can't believe I actually remember a time when phones were still attached to the wall. But I also lived long enough to see the majority of humanity make the transition to cyborg. We just don't know. And another thing is that I never, ever really go for these shows on ghosts in a classic, scary, paranormal sort of sense. I just think too many shitty Ghost Hunter shows ruin that for me. I also think they interpret the experiences through just an overly simplified lens. These are not all lost or tortured souls of dead people. Either way, though, I thought it was a fun show overall. Maybe not super Halloween-themed. We got into that Inner Earth. We got into those underground realms. You know I love that. And, of course... I don't always plan episodes out to line up with conventional holidays, but sometimes it happens. Earlier in the year, I just happened to do an interview with Freddie Silva on The Lost Art of Resurrection just as Easter was coming around. So that synced up pretty nicely on its own. And then you have situations like 9-11, where this year I just happened to put out the Lon Strickler show about the Chicago Owlman sightings on 9-11. And I got a decent amount of heat for putting out something like that on such an important day. But, you know, I had Judy Wood on in the middle of the year, so what are you going to do? Do you really need to be reminded of 9-11 every year? But Halloween just happens to be one of those holidays where it does dawn on me to try to do something somewhat scary as we're coming up to it. Last year, we had David Matheson on to really talk about his work on the stars, but also we dedicated a portion of the show to Ghosts at West Point, where he went. And the focus went a different direction today, but I really liked it. We got into ghosts, out-of-body experience, communication with geometric shapes on the astral planes, and UFOs just in the first 20 minutes. But I did mention at the end of the last episode with Peter Mark Adams, great show, that I had a Halloween story to tell you. And it's not really my story. It was told to me by a friend about a girl who was in one of the younger grades in my high school, or one of my high schools, the one that kicked me out, St. Pius X in Festus, Missouri. Anyway, so this girl was doing the classic babysitting thing. She was at a house watching two kids around two and four years of age. And as the night went on, the kids were put to bed and she was sitting on the bed of the parents' room, just watching TV, killing time. And she sees this weird life-size clown mannequin doll thing in the corner of the room. And it's just eerie, right? It's not her house. She's alone at night. So it keeps drawing her attention. She keeps looking at it. And eventually... She swears that it blinks, and so now she's really weirded out, and she wants to put like a blanket over it or move it into the closet, but you also don't want to damage something that might be a family heirloom or just important to the family in some regard. So she calls the mom and she just says, hey, everything's fine, but I'm just a little freaked out by that clown statue you have in the room. Could I maybe move it or put something over it, perhaps? And the mom says, close the door. Get the kids out of the house and call the police because we have nothing that fits that description in our room or in our house or anywhere. So this is where we start to get the chills, right? But the girl does just that. She quickly shuts the bedroom door with the clown doll inside. She grabs the kids and she gets out of the house. And when the police arrive, they go in and the clown is gone. But the window is open. And they find a guy dressed as a clown running through the woods. And he says, please don't arrest me. I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I'd just like to watch. And so this was an adult man dressed as a clown sitting in the corner of a room just staring lifelessly at this babysitter for who knows how long. Too long. That's for sure. And the icing on the cake is that the older kid that she was watching had actually been telling his parents about his new clown friend that he met recently And they just thought it was his imagination or something. But that's the story, people. One of the creepiest stories I know. So enjoy the rest of the day. Also remember that the Higher Side Chats and Tinfoil Hat are doing another night of conspiratorial comedy and podcasting. Also, people have been asking me if they can sign up for THC Plus through Patreon. And I hemmed and hawed, but now you can. I'm always going to urge people to sign up through my system first, because there's always the chance that one day Patreon will say, we don't like what you're covering, so we can't have you on our platform. But I know it's a popular system, and it is pretty clean and simple, so I get why people like it, and the Higher Side Chats Plus is now on Patreon. You get the full archive there as well, everything you'd get traditionally. You will have to email me for a forum login, but that's a small thing. So sign up if you're into the Patreon system. (laughs) Already we got $26 coming in monthly so far, so big deal this Patreon thing. Also, I'm putting out a call to see if the Higher Side Chats has any listeners out there that are skilled in animation. I'm not looking for free work. I know animation is tedious and generally pretty expensive, but I'm hoping maybe we can work out a little bit better of a deal than just hiring some random freelancer But I'd like to get some highlight clips animated to promote the full-length episodes. Maybe just take some of the best stories or responses, like five minutes or ten minutes, animate them and throw them out on YouTube. I think that would be pretty awesome. There's some pretty epic things talked about, and people would be drawing multidimensional entities, UFOs, the Demiurge himself, all kinds of crazy stuff. I just think it'd be a good, fun project. You see a lot of podcasts doing this now, but it's always just animated clips of the host and guests sitting by the microphones, and that's not what we're looking for. Just an idea, but I thought I'd put out the call to the audience, if there's someone out there, just email me the chats at gmail.com. And really if you think you have any skill that might work for some type of collaboration, get at me. I'm thinking of redoing the intro theme song, but I just don't know exactly what to do. I kinda want to do it yearly. Every year would be a different one and that would kind of be a subtle reminder to how old a particular episode is just some I'm kicking around. But I also thought instead of having to dedicate so much time to that project and like the musical direction and helping someone create something that I like and they like that I think fits for the show, I think it'd be kind of cool if artists just took it upon themselves to cover the THC intro song. Just use the same lyrics and make your own version. That could be kind of cool to play a different one all the time where the words stay the same. I'm just kind of rambling now. But, you know, if you want the Higher Side Chats Plus and you can't afford it, I do have the THC Street Team, so you could just post new episodes on forums or wherever in exchange for Plus. I'd also love to see Higher Side memes out there or people taking quotes from the show and slapping them on a picture that's relevant. If you want to work out a deal to do that instead of pay for plus, I'm open. I do feel like we're at a point where we need to throw a little more gas on the higher side fire, which is really my job, not yours. But if you can help and are willing, I don't ask this kind of thing often. It's my show, it's my business, and I try to take care of everything myself. But a little push would be nice. The more we grow, the better guests I can bring on for you. That's kind of the reason I'm doing this, is there's some areas where I can't get these guests. Forget the money. Some of these researchers just don't know about THC or they think the name is silly. That happens. They are familiar with Coast to Coast or they know Jimmy Church and they just don't see the need to do other interviews. We got to change that perception in some cases. So tell your favorite researchers this is where they will have the best showing because it's true. No commercial breaks. Very lengthy. I let my guests talk. Nobody edits like we edit. Nobody sets a guy up with an intro like we set him up. It's in their best interest, so let's make them an offer they can't refuse, right? Isn't that the way it's done? Anyway, as with every episode, there's an extra hour today for paid subscribers of Plus. And with Brad on this episode, we got into ancient megaliths and ancient aliens, also how suspiciously popular that program is. At least that was my point I was trying to make, that it seems like a vehicle for indoctrination more than anything. I used to love it, but because it's now dominated History Channel and it's really broadcast to its fullest extent, it becomes a chicken and the egg thing. Did they really just play it more often because it did sort of go viral in a sense and money is money, so screw it? Or is it a worldview that they want us to have? After that show with Chris Knowles and all the talk about the Babylonian cult behind the curtain, I feel more suspicious of it than I used to. It's all about... Sumerian stuff, and Zachariah Sitchin's interpretation? I'm not sure. Even if I love the idea of genetically created humans by our space brother visitors, you gotta look at these things. Anyway, we also talked about Brad's thoughts on the Nazis, Tibet, and those inner Earth stories, how the hollow Earth and channeling actually affected World War II. We got into Brad's friend, the son of an American Nazi expat and his alien contacts. That's the kind of anecdote You know, I'm looking for talking to a guy who's in his 80s. And what else? We also let Brad reflect on the common themes among the reports he's gotten over the decades. And we talked about why the polarization and divisiveness of our age is more worrisome to Brad than previous decades. Just why the flavor is a little bit different. So as always, good times all around. Join the club and get more of the show you love so much, The thehiresidechatsplus.com, or search for us on Patreon. I think October's been a pretty solid month. We had Ale Demengard talking about the Vegas shooting, Susan Clark talking about 5G, Chris Knowles and Peter Mark Adams, two of my favorite shows in a long time. I hope you're happy. And I'm getting out of here. Your move, alien invaders, underground entities, clown doll men, and trapezoids of the astral plane. Your fucking move.
3: Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was light Coming down from the sky I don't know who or why Must be those strangers That come every night Whose saucer-shaped light Put people up tight, Leave blue-green footprints That in the dark I hope They get home All right Hey Mr. Spaceman Won't you please Take me along I won't do anything wrong. Would you please take me along the high side? I woke up this morning, I was feeling quite weird. I had flies in my beer, my toothpaste was smeared. I opened my window.